0: You know, I'm guessing that there are very few who are aware of the historical significance of this week. I'm I'm thinking of you at the 95th Street campus. I doubt anyone knows. Bolingbrook, Wheaton, Hobson. This week, 20 years ago exactly, was the closing of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Do you remember this glorious ride that was at Disney World? Man, I loved that as a kid. Some of us were so disappointed when they shut it down and took it off the planet. In fact, you know, some people actually flew down to Orlando to protest the closing of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. They wore t-shirts that said, Mickey murdered Mr. Toad. And they were just really (laughs) upset about this. I wonder if, if, uh, just out of curiosity at each of our four campuses, if you ever went on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, would you raise your hand? I know I'm not alone. Most of you did not, so I need to tell you about this ride. It freaked me out, first of all. My first time, I think it was like five years old. And it's called a wild ride because it's designed to make you think you're out of control. And it was very effective in my life. First of all, I got to drive. I couldn't believe my dad was gonna let me drive. He said, Yeah, son, take the wheel. You know, and so I was the one sitting behind the wheel, you know, and as a five-year-old, I'm like ready to do this well. Well, the car takes off, and we went to like this farm, and there was a cow in front of me, and so I'm turning the wheel like crazy to no avail. Thankfully, at the very last minute, the, I just missed the cow, I just missed some sheep, I, I just missed some pigs, and then there was a, a barricade it said road closed, and like boom, you know, I blew right through that despite my attempts to avoid it. Almost went into the river. Then there was another car with other tourists, you know, coming right at us, and I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, boom, cars just missed. Went into a, a town where a police officer is like, stop, stop, and I'm trying, you know, I can't find the brake. It was crazy. I went into a tunnel, and in that tunnel, sure enough, I hear the sound of an oncoming locomotive. And there's the headlight, and this train is hauling right at me. And I'm like, no! And I think the light just went right over my head. Anyways, as I burst out into the daylight, I'm not a real quick kid, but it started to dawn on me, maybe that ride wasn't as out of control as I originally thought it was. Maybe Mr. Disney planned the whole thing. Maybe that ride was carefully orchestrated to have all those near misses. And in fact, it was designed to maximize pleasure and safety. Friends, I know. Let me talk about life in our culture because it seems out of control, does it not? We look at this world and we're like, this is nuts. We've got hurricanes going on in North Carolina. We've got forest fires over in California. We've got terrorists who are killing people indiscriminately, nations who are at war, politicians who are going about things in ways that don't make us necessarily feel better about things. We've got our state of Illinois that is so upside down and in debt with no real plan to come out of it. We've got our immediate culture where morality, biblical morality, has been thrown out of the window and people are inventing their own morality according to what seems right to them. And it's so easy for us to just go, what is going on? How can anyone sleep at night? How can we have peace with the world swirling in this way that it is? How can we avoid panic attacks and anxiety that's out of control? Well, I'll tell you how. Could it be that things are not as out of control as they seem? Could it be that like Mr. Toad's wild ride, this ride is like, this is nuts. But in fact, there is one who is in control. Friends, we need to study this doctrine that's called the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty. It's a big theological term. It simply means that God is in control. And if you're going to live in Babylon, you got to know that he's in control. When I say live in Babylon, maybe you weren't here last week, and so let me explain. We're studying the book of Daniel, actually the first six chapters, one week on each chapter. It's a six-week series. And Daniel and his friends, he's got three friends that we follow in this adventure, They are on Mr. Toad's wild ride. (laughs) Their, Their lives are like, what is going on? They were teenagers having a great go of it, living in Jerusalem, a beloved city. Good families, good education, good opportunity. And then, boom, this huge, awful empire called Babylon. The Babylonian Empire swept in and conquered Jerusalem, killing many sweeping them away as prisoners of war. They find themselves dragged to this distant land with a foreign language and a foreign culture and foreign religion. And they're missing family and friends going, what's going on? And then they find themselves caught up and asked to play a role in the government of this great empire. All a strategy on Nebuchadnezzar's part to use local or people of those conquered nations to rule those conquered nations. And, and so they're in government, and their boss is nuts. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as we're going to see, cuckoo, I mean, he flips out regularly, as he will in this passage. And they are just like, oh, what's going on? Well, the way that they've learned to thrive in Babylon is in part to believe and cling to the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. And if we're going to thrive in Babylon, we must do the same. And so let's learn, shall we? And we're learning out of well, second week, second chapter. Daniel chapter 2, and I want to start reading in verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, now let me clarify, Nebuchadnezzar is the king, the emperor, the them is these wise men, this group of advisors, sometimes called astrologers, magicians, enchanters, lots of titles. Daniel and his three friends are part of this group. They're the advisors of the the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Well, then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever! Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Verse 5 The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. See, he's crazy. See what I'm talking about? Uh, they're like, uh, excuse me, you want us to tell you what you dreamed? He's like, yeah. And they're like, no, no, you, you tell us what you dreamed, and then we'll guess at the interpretation. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is a smart guy in this. He's like, if you guys are really supposed to have this divine knowledge, well, let's test you and see. Let's call you out. Well, they balked and they screamed back at Nebuchadnezzar, that's impossible, there's no way, no king has ever asked this of his people. What you've asked is impossible. Well, that impossible thing didn't make the king very happy. Verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, so Daniel gets a knock at his door. Hey, how are you doing? What are you here for? I'm here to kill you. What? And the guy's like, haven't you heard? Daniel's like, no, tell me. The king had a dream. He's asking the wise men, you know, can you tell me what the dream was and interpret? No one can, so we're going to kill you all. And then Daniel runs to the king and says, King, don't kill us yet. I'll do the very thing you've asked. I'll tell you what you dreamt. And the interpretation, just give me a little time. And the king's like, all right, you got a little time. We'll see you tomorrow. And so Daniel decides this is a good time for a prayer meeting. And so, verse 17, Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. That's prayer. Concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed. I have good reason to pray. Well, uh, they pray like crazy, and then they go to bed and say, well, I'll see you in the morning, maybe, you know. And now I want to read verse 19 through 21. Uh, I've been reading in the NIV this particular Section I want to read in the New Living Translation. I like this translation better. That night, the secret of this dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I don't know if Daniel was sleeping and he had a dream about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, or if he couldn't sleep and God just brought it in, a, in an awake vision. I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter. Then in, in that morning, after he got the information, Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power, and he controls the course of world events. And that's sovereignty, that last statement, God controls the course of world events. God is sovereign, he's in control. Why? Is Daniel celebrating God's sovereignty, having gained this knowledge? Well, we're about to find out. As he interprets, tells the dream and interprets the dream, it's all about God being in control. and So let's find out what happened. So he goes to the king Nebuchadnezzar in the morning, and he says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, do you, do you know my dream? Do you have the interpretation? And look at how Daniel responds to that. Verse 27, Daniel replied... No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. What humility I fear if I had been in Daniel's place and I had been asked, "Well, can you tell me the dream and interpretation I would have stepped up, "I'm your man. I got this, huh? I told you I'd come through. I know what you dream. I would have you know, Daniel is so humble and says, "I can't. I can't. No person can, but there is a God who can. And Daniel strategically utilizes this moment to direct all glory to God, to help Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king who knows nothing about God, learn something about a one true God of all knowledge and power. And he points Nebuchadnezzar to God and says, God has revealed what will happen. And then Daniel transitions into first telling him what he dreamt. So let me now read verse 31. Here's what happened. While you were dreaming, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar going, how did you know I dreamt about a statue? God told me. But more than that, Daniel goes on to describe the uniqueness of this statue. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron. Very unique statue composed of four different metals arranged in a particular order. We see it depicted here in this uh, image. And Nebuchadnezzar cannot believe that with detail that he could not know any other way other than this God gave it to him. Daniel describes what the statue of his dream was like. But there's more. Daniel goes on saying, here's what happened. Verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. That's that's an important note. This is not a human rock. This is a rock from God. And this rock struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this huge boulder comes flying, (laughs) It hits the feet, blows them up. Daniel goes on to describe that the whole statue crumbles and falls to the ground and the wind blows it away. The statue has gone. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. It's exactly what happened in my dream. And he's all ears now. He wants to know the interpretation. There's no doubt Daniel has that knowledge because he's been able to do the harder parts and so Daniel continues in verse 38. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. I'm guessing Nebuchadnezzar liked that. Oh, I'm the head of gold, am I? You know, well, he's not going to like as this progresses because what this is a reference to, and it will become clear, is this is a reference to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's great empire, the empire he built. But what's going to happen, these metals are a progression of four empires uh, sequentially replaced the one before them. And the reason this is going to be hard for Nebuchadnezzar is he probably thought, my empire is going to last forever. That's how narcissistic emperors are. You know, that, particularly at this stage in world history, because the cyclical nature of, of empires wasn't as established as it is today. At that point, what, we had had the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire. That was about it. So they just didn't know that empires don't last forever. And he would have thought so. And he's about to find out, no, it's just going to last a little bit and it's all going to be destroyed. And I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's shocked by that. Now, we tend to have the same, even though we have more history to back it up. If I were to tell you, one of these days the United States is going to be a small and insignificant powerless nation. We'd be like, no, never! We're always going to be world-dominating. No, it doesn't work that way. Empires come. Empires go, study history, right? Well, the, the, the interpretation of the dream continues in verse 39. After you, Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. This is a reference. Who conquered Babylon? What was the next kingdom? It was Persia, sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire. And sure enough, in 539 B.C., The Persians conquered the Babylonians and took over. Now, if if the Persians conquered the Babylonians, that sounds like they're stronger. And so in what sense are they inferior to the Babylonians? I think the answer is, in what sense is silver inferior to gold? Silver is actually stronger than gold. But it's not as luxurious, not as opulent. And that is what Babylon was known for. The opulence of Babylon. Maybe you've heard of the great hanging gardens of Babylon. One of the wonders of the world. Nobody could touch Babylon and its luxurious architectural prominence. And sure enough, Persia was not as great in that regard. So Persia's around for a while, but then look at verse 39 continues. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Friends, uh, this is Greece. Have you studied uh, your history? Greece conquered Persia in 331 B.C. I married a Greek, and so Jen's like, yes, this is it, you know. And so it was Alexander the Great who came from Greece and He embarked on a world conquest campaign. And the geographic scope of Alexander's campaign is mind-boggling. He started in Macedonia, northern Greece, and he went east as far as India, as far north as the Caspian Sea, as far south as Egypt. And people were amazed then, as they are today, that this guy led the conquering of the whole known earth. And sure enough, Daniel, centuries before it happened, predicted that this third kingdom of bronze would be known for ruling over such a vast geographic terrain. That's how it happened. Well, what's next? Well, verse 40 says, Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. And this is a reference to Rome, We know that in 146 BC, Rome conquered Greece and became the next sequential empire. And the strength of Rome was monumental. Uh, interestingly, part of their military strength was because of their strategic use of iron. In fact, this is right around the time that the Bronze Age transitions to the Iron Age because... Uh, Rome knew how to take iron, make steel, and the steel weaponry was so strong and hard. And, and sure enough, before it happened, Daniel says, through the interpretation of the dream, we're about to see four empires proceed sequentially that will be amazing, increasingly strong. And, and then there's more. He now talks about a fifth empire, that, that rock symbolizes another kingdom. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Remember this rock was not cut out by human hands, but this is a God rock. Sure enough, this is a God kingdom. God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock. All right, so let me highlight some words in this. uh, what, What about this kingdom? It's a kingdom set up by God, God's kingdom. It will be superior to all earthly kingdoms, crushing them. It will endure forever. You say, I thought you said the kingdom's empires don't last forever. It's cyclical. Uh, except this is the one exception to that. This is a kingdom of another sort that is eternal of nature. And it is symbolized by the rock. Some of you are like, I think I know what that's a reference to. Yes, that is Jesus Christ was called the rock the builders rejected. And Christ came announcing the kingdom of God. Behold, if you study the Gospels, it's the language Jesus used continually. I am here to usher in a new kingdom, a different sort of kingdom, a kingdom belonging to God. And God's kingdom is different, it's not marked out by geographic territory, but it expands across the whole Earth, and the citizens are all those who have been reconciled to God through Christ, and they, we are part of that kingdom. And it's a kingdom that lasts forever. And when does it come? Sure enough, just like in this dream, it comes during that fourth kingdom. the kingdom of Rome, during the Roman Empire, is the arrival of the rock this eternal kingdom. Wow! You know, history books were being written by Daniel before it even happened. Why? Demonstrating that God knows more than God knows. God is in control. God is behind the scenes. God is making it happen. Wow. And this is beautiful news, to Daniel at least. Remember what he said? Uh, Let me read again. I'm, I'm going back In time, as we progress to the next slide, 21, when he woke up from having the dream or he discovered the dream and its interpretation, now these words are making more sense. Daniel, praise the name of God forever and ever for he has all wisdom and power and he controls the course of world events. Now we understand that dream was, in fact, I would go so far as to say the dream wasn't for Nebuchadnezzar at all, maybe a little bit. The dream was for Daniel and for us. God was wanting to convey that when things seem craziest, when Israel has fallen and Babylon seems like it's in charge forever, God says, let me tell you how it's going on. Babylon, I'm letting them. I'm giving them dominion for a season. And then I'll replace them. With Persia, and then I'll replace them with Greece, and then I'll replace them with Rome, and then I will bring my kingdom of another sort that will last forever. God is demonstrating to Daniel that God's in control of world events, and Daniel's realizing God's in control of my personal life. His sovereignty is displayed in the day-to-day. Last night, I went to bed thinking I might die. Today, I see, oh no, God's in control. It's going to be okay. Friends, Daniel found so much pleasure and joy in the sovereignty of God. Do you? Does this doctrine change your life? Should? Now, some of you are like, I want to celebrate that God's in control and go, I'm all good. But I see bad things happen to the world and to me. If God's in control, what's going on here? How do I explain evil if God's in control? How do I explain suffering? Okay, admittedly, the implication or the application of God's sovereignty is complex. God chooses a beautiful, complex way of exercising his sovereignty. In fact, I think the complexity is alluded to in the word wisdom here. Let's let's highlight that. Daniel, seeing what God's doing is celebrating God's wisdom. Now, the power I get, because you need power to be sovereign, to be in control. But do you need great wisdom to be in control? When you do it God's way, you better be smart, because God says, I'm going to be sovereign. Check this out. God says, but I'm also going to sovereignly choose to give free will to human beings. And God says, I'm going to ask those human beings to bear the consequences of their good and bad decisions. And you say, wait a minute, if you give humanity free will and they're going to have to bear the consequences, isn't that going to send everything out of control? God says, I understand why you may think that, but I am so smart. I am going to work in and around the free will decisions of humanity still turning and guiding history in this world to my end like a master chess player who anticipates the move of the opponent and actually utilizes the moves of the opponent to accomplish his end and can guarantee I'm going to win. So God says, the way I exercise sovereignty is allowing people to make choices, but I work with their choices. I anticipate their choices, and I plan with brilliant wisdom. And God says, I win. Watch. And all who are on my side will win, and I will guide history, even while entrusting freedom to people. Now, the complex way that God does this results in us needing some clarity on how this affects our lives. And so what I'd like to do now is to provide what I call sovereignty principles. And I love uh, these sovereignty principles. I cling to them. And I think if you do as well, they will bring you peace, even in Babylon. The first principle I call is the hedge of protection. I call it that because the Bible calls it that. In Job 1.10, maybe you're aware of this, Satan in this passage is having a debate with God and Satan's like, man, I want to crush Job, but I can't. I can't get to him, jo- Satan says, because you've got, you, God, have got a hedge of protection around him. And it's pointing to the fact that God protects his own. The Bible talks about guardian angels, about many bad things, consequences of, of rebellion. Don't get our way because God protects us. Friends, uh, all bad stuff is not God's doing. All bad stuff is a result of our sin and rebellion from him. Even natural disasters like hurricanes. Ultimately, it's, it's about us turning away from God. God said, listen, uh, I'm kind of here and you're going to want me here. And humanity said, no, go away, God. And God says, you know, you're going to, the earth is going to groan. Nature is going to be out of control, at least partially, because of your rebellion. And that's what we see. But God doesn't let it all get to us. He only lets some of it through the hedge. If any hardship gets into your life, it is because God has decided in his infinite love and wisdom that this is a hardship he's going to let through. Uh, And friends, that's greatly encouraging. You say, no, I wish the hedge was like, no, perfect life, no problems coming my way. Uh, We'll get that in heaven, but we're not there yet. But we do thank God for the hedge that shields us from so much. Now, regarding the hard things that do get through, that brings us to the next sovereignty principle, which is never too much gets through. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 10.13, where God promises that we will never be asked to face more testing than we can bear. God says, I will limit The amount of chaos that enters your life to what, with my help, you compare. Now, you may argue with God on this point too and say, Lord, you've let you brought in, you've let in too much. I can't handle this. And God's like, oh, that's not true, actually. I'd never do that. With my help, I know you can handle this. But God promises that we'll never have to face more than we can bear. He will sovereignly limit the exposure to the harsh edge of reality that we have to endure. And that brings us to the next one, which is good out of bad. This is one of our favorite verses, Romans 8.28. In this verse, God promises that in all things, he works for the good of those who love him. That's us. Uh, In all things, all things are not good. In fact, Many of it is bad. But even in the bad, God works for the good. In other words, God has a way of taking awful things and working sovereignly in those awful things to bring good in our lives out of them. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's the prime example. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that awful Friday that humanity murdered God. And yet the Lord's like, watch this, watch this. And he turned that awful Friday into Good Friday, the day we celebrate as our only hope, the death on our behalf that takes away the sin of the world. God took bad, made it good. Or think of the death of all the disciples. Do you know that every one of Jesus' disciples were murdered for their faith except for John? And we think of that as what, you know, can you imagine had you lived then? All of our leaders are being killed. It's out of control. And God goes, Romans 8.28, watch this. One of the early historians said that the martyrdom of the apostles became the seed of the church. In other words, God took the inspiring example of these men willing to give all for Christ and the remaining Christians were inspired and rose up in strength and passion and the church thrived because of the bad. And you could probably find examples in your own life of God taking bad stuff and creatively using it in your life to bring about good. It's one of the brilliant sovereignty principles. God brings good out of bad. What's the next one? always with me. Oh, this is good stuff. Psalm 23, verse 4, King David reminds us, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. My shepherd is by my side. Friends, God says, I'm going to let through some stuff, never too much. The hard stuff, I will bring good out of it. But the best thing, God says, is I would never ask you to face it alone. God promises in tangible experience we will recognize the companionship of God as we walk through those difficult seasons. God says, it'll be me by your side whispering encouragement and promising strength, showering love. And those days of journeying through hardship are utterly transformed because God is there. It's how God sovereignly gets in the mix. And one last one that I like to call just in time. This points to this tendency of God to save the day in the nick of time. God, uh, well, let me just remind you of Lamentations 326, 3.26 and where God says, wait patiently for the Lord's rescue. This is one of the ways God tests, develops our faith is we we cry out and we're like, Lord, help, Lord, help. And in the nick of time so often, God comes to the aid. We would like for God to pour all the resources and strength we need to face any potential obstacle, and God doesn't work that way. He goes, I ain't giving you the resources, the strength, until you face that obstacle. God doesn't give dying grace to living men. He gives dying grace to dying men. You may say, I could never face cancer. You're right. Today you couldn't face cancer. But if God chooses to let cancer through the hedge of protection to you someday, you will be able to then, as he provides the strength you need in the hour of need. That's how God rolls. Sovereignty principles. And let's take a look at Daniel's life. Is are these going on in this story in Daniel? I think they are. What about the hedge of protection? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man in the whole world, had ordered Daniel's execution. And God said, no, not today. And God provided a rescue and protection that never reached Daniel. How about never too much? You may argue, Daniel experienced too much for a young teenager to go through all of that. God, you're Letting him endure too much. And God would say, no, actually not. God says, take a look at Daniel. He, with me, he's stronger than you think. And sure enough, turns out Daniel rises up and can handle with God's help what God allows. What about this? Good out of bad. Is, is there any good that comes out of this horrific situation? Well, you should know Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed with Daniel's knowing of the dream and the interpretation of the dream The Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, I'm going to promote you to the highest level in my government. Daniel says, what about my three friends? Can you give them a new job too? Sure. And those three are promoted as well. So much good. In Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual journey and in the career path and faith development of these four, so much good is brought out of this bad. What about God is always with you? Was God with them? Yeah. Yeah. Remember that night as they prayed to God, Lord, talk to us. The Lord spoke a voice, not audibly, but in a vision came to Daniel. He heard from God and in the morning he praised God saying, Lord, you are awesome. Thanks for meeting me. And, and yes, God was there with them. They conversed and he praised. What about just in time? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the executioner was at the door. And uh, Daniel was saying, King, just give me a few hours. Okay, okay, please, God. And boom, the nick of time. God saved the day. Friends, the sovereignty principles were at play back in Daniel's day, and they still are today. And if we understand sovereignty and the nuance and how God brings it about, it's game-changing. And you can become someone who has a peace that the world knows not, has a joy, a bounce in your step, a dance. Go back to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. That that time when I was five and I freaked out, ah, that wasn't my last time on the ride. I came back and it was all different understanding how it works. This time I'm like, woo, you know, i got my hands behind my head. Look at this. I was at peace. I understood. No, it's not as out of control as it seems. And when a Christian enters into the sovereignty of God, they're like, I know this is crazy, but I've got a father in heaven. And he's by my side. And though it seems nuts, I've read the book. And he is in control. And I trust his wisdom and his love and his power. He's got me. It's good. Let me pray for us. Lord, this world's crazy, crazy. Seems to be spinning wildly. And yet, it's always been that way. And yet, you've always been in control. We see it in the dream, we see it in the book. God, would you make us a people who don't just know about sovereignty? theoretically, but people who live clinging to your sovereignty, who trust you implicitly. God, bring us joy even in chaos. Bring us laughter and dancing and song and peace and sleep and genuine smiles as we rest in your divine sovereignty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.